developing character. You know, for um, just a couple weeks now, we started this new study out of the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And if you are new here today, all we're trying to do is to figure out what type characteristics we ought to have in our life if we claim to be followers of Jesus. I mean, authentic followers of Jesus, real, the real deal. So today we continue down that path. And Linus from Charlie Brown fame, are you familiar with the little guy? He was having a conversation with Lucy, and he says, why are you always so anxious to criticize me? And Lucy says, I just have a knack for pointing out the faults of other people. And Linus said, what about your faults? And Lucy says, I also have the knack for ignoring them. (laughs) You know any Lucys who are quick to attack, quick to criticize, quick to point fingers, quick to throw stones? Words matter. Rabbi Joseph Teleshkin author of Words That Hurt and Words That Heal, he travels America, probably even the world, teaching on this concept of words. And usually he asks a question of every audience. And the question is this, could you go 24 hours without saying anything negative about someone or something? And he says a lot of people in the audiences that he speaks to say they can never pull that off. And his thoughts are, if they can't go 24 hours without saying unkind words, without attacking or criticizing another person or situation, then they have a serious problem. You see, if a person can't go 24 hours without an alcoholic beverage, it means they are addicted and they have a serious problem. If a person can't go 24 hours without smoking something, that means that they are addicted to nicotine and they have a serious problem. Likewise, if a person can't go 24 hours without saying kind words or without being encouraging or motivational with someone, that means they have another ungodly problem. Words matter. The New York Times recently reported the results of a study they did. They targeted an area hospital and they sent actors in and all the actors were supposed to do was act rude while they were there. In the emergency room, rude. Visiting room, rude. No matter where they were in the hospital, they were either to act rude mildly or off the charts rude. The studies showed that even the mild, rude expressions affected the doctors and nurses for the whole day or for the length of their shift. Words matter. In his book, Sabbath Time, Tilden Edwards tells about a family with teenage kids and what they decided to do one year 
is to not criticize or antagonize each other on the Sabbath day. So every Sunday, they would do their best to keep their mouth shut, maybe to walk or turn away or whatever the case might be. And the interesting thing is their kids, their friends started coming over to their house because the climate or the atmosphere, the landscape was good. They didn't tell anyone about their little promise to one another, but they just began to live it out to practice, practice that. You see, for some reason, it seems like words, words matter. It matters what you say, when you say it, how you say it. It seems to take on its own venue. And you know, when it comes to criticism, all of us have probably been in the crosshairs of criticism. I mean, if you are warm and breathing, if you have a pulse... If you are drawing breath, that usually means you are doing life, and usually you find yourself in the crosshairs of someone's criticism. It could be from your spouse, or it could be from your ex, a parent, or a child, or a friend, or an enemy, or an employer, or an employee, or on on the list seems to go. We tend to be very good at attacking, at criticizing. And Paul, I think, understood that. Last week, he kind of created an atmosphere for us. What does it mean to be an authentic follower, an authentic believer? What does it mean to be the real deal when connecting to Jesus? And this week, he begins to defend his ministry And to respond to criticism. You know, this man, even with a bullseye pinned on him, is known for authoring 13 of the New Testament books. The man is known for starting various churches in that region and for doing his best to model the teachings of Jesus for others. It wasn't always that way. Before Paul became Paul, he was Saul, and he was an enemy of the church. And then he went through this transformation, what the gospel can do to all of us, and it began to make differences in his life. So i got to ask this question right out of the blocks, okay, just to kind of get us on the same page. Anyone here feel like they are a different person today than they were before they came to Jesus? Let me see. I mean, the gospel message has a way of changing us, doesn't it? Can make me a better dad or a better husband or a better friend or a better employee. employee. That's what the gospel message, we saw that last week. It has the power to transform or change us. So with that being said, on his second missionary journey, he lands again in Thessalonica, he has already left the town because of all the pressure and criticism. In fact, he and Silas left at night. They decided that was the safest time to get out of Dodge. And now a year later, he writes this to his friends, and now he begins to basically defend himself from all the criticism. So if you have your Bibles or if you have your phones ready, 1 Thessalonians 
Chapter 2, starting with verse 1, here's what it says. You know, brothers, that our visits to you, it was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi. As you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you the gospel in spite of the strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we uh, never use flattery, or do we put on a mask to cover up our greed? As God is our witness, we were not looking for the praise of men, not from you or anyone else. As the apostles of Christ, we could have been burden, a burden to you, but you were gentle. We were gentle among you. Like a mother caring for her little children, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel but, uh, of God, but our lives as well. Because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order that we may not be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God. You are my witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each other uh, as a father deals with uh, his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into uh, his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And I will point my finger at verses 4 through 17 towards the very end, but that's kind of the issue that Paul begins to show himself. He starts right out of the block with two observances. Verse 1 says, when we came to visit you, it was a, su a success. Didn't fail. What we wanted to do, we did. And the results that we hoped for, they happened. He also says in verse 2 that when they were there, they were at great risk. There was strong opposition to the gospel message to the church. and Those people know that when they were in Philippi that Paul and Silas were beaten with rods and imprisoned for a period of time. So when they got to Thessalonica, they came with eyes wide open. They kind of knew what to expect. Verse 3, Paul begins a formal defense of his ministry and the criticism, and he emphasizes two things. The first is this, his methodology, how he did his work. And then also his motive, why he did what he did. The methodology of his defense is quite simply one word. It was all about integrity. And without integrity, doesn't matter your methodology. But he wanted to remind his friends that he and his fellow workers were men of integrity, men who um, uh, did what they did because of who Jesus was. So he starts right in verse 3 by saying that their message was without error. 
Paul didn't come to this message on his own. He says in verse 13 that this message that they had was not a preconceived idea. It was not written down by them. This philosophical approach was words that came from God himself. And because of that, they were able to change the lives and the hearts of men and women with the message. So here are some characteristics. First off, he says, these are things that you should not have in your life if you are a follower of Jesus. And then he says, here are some things you ought to have. So right out of the block, verse 3, he says, their message, their lives were without impurity. They were pure. The term could be used to address ambition or pride or greed, but it was most often used in reference to sexual purity. You see, back in those days, it was not unusual. Those who worshipped pagans would often do despicable sexual things at the places of worship in the name of their God. And Paul was saying, we are not those kind of men. You guys don't worship like pagans do anymore. We will do whatever it takes to show you that we are with, without impurity. The word here is the same word used in Ephesians 4.19 when Paul tells all the believers there should never be a hint of sexual impurity among you. Now, if we were to kind of translate that into our culture today, would that be the way we live? Not a hint of sexual impurity? So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, there's no hint of that kind of togetherness? There's a word, gnosko. It means to know. And back in Bible times, if they were to ask you the question, do you know, do you gnosko this person? That meant that you knew them intimately. So that was a big, big deal. Told our people in first service, there are some staff, some churches that I'm aware of, who uh, forbid their staff to drive in a vehicle with someone of the opposite sex. And I know what you're thinking. Seriously? 21st century here. But they are practicing this word. They don't want to have any hint of sexual immorality, so they will do whatever they can to protect themselves. And Paul was letting these people know that we aren't like the pagans. We don't do that. We don't think that way. We don't talk that way. We don't go to those kind of places. We are without impurity. We're pure. Paul's critics accused him otherwise. Verse 3 goes on to say that they were without deceit. In the original language, the term is a noun. In our culture, we might connect uh, this type of thinking to the word. And that's the kind of thinking that we would use when we think about fishing. How many fishermen or fisherwomen do we have here today? This would imply worms or a lure. And the worm or the lure is used to deceive the fish. And if the fish grabs the worm or the lure, it gets something it's not expecting, right? That's the terminology. That's the concept that Paul is using in verse 3. He is saying there's nothing deceptive about our, 
our message. There is no manipulation. There is nothing we are concealing. We are who we say we are. And isn't that the kind of church that you would like to be a part of? People who are genuine? People who are straight shooters? People who will tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Paul was trying to define who he was by how they lived. Verse 5 talks about flattery. And if you are really a follower of Jesus, you understand that you do things without flattery. You don't flatter people to try to get something. That was kind of an approach of the pagan teachers. They would flatter or compliment or do whatever they could to get something from someone. You know those kind of people? Have you met those kind of people? I mean, you just want to punch them, don't you? Right in the throat. Just punch them and be done with them and walk away. Paul says they never used their influence to try to control another person with flattery. He also mentions in verse 5 that followers of Jesus, part of the character of them is to understand that they need to be without greed. Paul didn't want to take advantage of anyone financially, and he did all that he could not to. He was a tent maker. He worked, and it says in this piece of Scripture, they worked night and day. They worked hard so they could preach, would have the time and the resources to teach those that their paths cross. That's not the concept of the other pagans in their culture. I'm not sure it's the concept of ministers in churches today. It seems like there are a lot of religious leaders who have a tendency to want to um, fleece the flock. Does that make sense? Seriously? You are using this for, for what now? And Paul says we don't don't do that. So those are some things that we ought not have in our life. And now he also shifts gears and say, these are some things that followers of Jesus, some characteristics of our character that ought to be present. He says in verse 4 that they presented the gospel message with God's approval. The imagery there is of a servant In Bible times, that personality was given control of someone's household, their family, or their business. So there was a great deal of trust involved. How many of you who have little ones would just let anyone watch your kids? (laughs) No. No way, right? I mean, you want to know all about them. You want to see their pedigree. You want to see how they work and what makes them work. You want to know that they can be trusted And that they have your children in their best interest, don't you? That's the way it it works. And once that happens, you know that they will do whatever it takes for the benefit of your children. I got a phone call this week from Madison Grace. She's been in kindergarten now at this new school for one week. And she wanted me to know that she is now known as Madison C., for Clark, because there's another Madison in her class. Madison, I think it's B. And I said, Maddie, I will always call you Gabby. She talks all the time. I've nicknamed her Gabby. Before that, I called her Sprinkles because she would just eat the sprinkles off the donuts that I would bring. 
So I still call her Sprinkles and Gabby and she, she said, now listen to me. And I said, Manny, I, I love you. And it just kind of shocked her, I think. And she said, Bobby, listen to me. Could you go out and buy me an Indiana cheerleader's outfit? See, I have a picture in my office of her in an Illinois cheerleader's outfit. And she was so proud when she gave that to me. And I said, Maddie, I don't like this, but I love you, so I will put it in my office. After a week, she has come over from the dark side. I don't know where to find one of those. I got Debbie working on it, though, and we'll have one before we go there next weekend because I got to put it in her hands. Now, that's the kind of personality that I'd want someone to have if they were watching my grandkids. You take care of them. They want a cheerleading thing, you get it. You, want to t- you, you understand the concept that they're saying in this piece of Scripture? That's the kind of connection that we want to have. We want God's approval, not man's. Verse 10 says, these guys, three characteristics, they were holy, they were righteous, they were blameless. That set them apart. So I got to ask this question. If you are an authentic follower of Jesus, how holy are you? How blameless? How righteous? Would you care for God's children with those characteristics? These words were used to describe, in verse 7, he also talks about this connection with the word gentleness. You know, Paul was kind of a big shot in the church back in the day. He went from Saul to Paul, and he just kind of went right up the ladder pretty quickly. He was a mover and shaker in the church. He probably could have just pulled rank on these people. Hey, I am the apostle Paul. You do what I say. If you don't do what I say, I'll kill you. Okay, he may not have gone that far, but you know, he could have done that because he was the apostle Paul. But instead of doing that, verse 6 says that they, they did life, they did ministry with humility, sensitivity, and kindness. And he uses the imagery of a mother, a mother working with her newborn. In fact, the word indicates that she was breastfeeding her newborn in a gentle, kind, compassionate way. And he says that's the way we ought to interact with one another, with that kind of gentleness, that type of kindness, thinking of the other more than we do ourselves. And, you know, I can't really tell you what it feels like to be a newborn mom with a little one, but I can tell you what it feels like to be a newborn dad with a new little one. I thought I understood love when I met Debbie. No, wasn't until the boys came along. And then I really started to understand love. Sacrificial love. I felt different. I thought different. Different areas of responsibility and accountability now began to show itself. They said that they cared for, loved, and put their needs first, the people that they were in connection with. And that's what characters of God do. Verse 8 
Paul was very transparent here. The word shared that's used in the text there means that he literally shared his soul with these people. If I were to use the word soulmate, those of you who have been married for a length of time, you know what I'm talking about, right? Let me go over here to Jerry and Bernie. Just told me, 60 years together? 62 years. Do you know who your soulmate is? You better, baby. If you have been connected that way for that length of time, you know what I mean when I say soulmate. If you're in school and you're dating someone and you say, I've met my soulmate, I'm probably going to be sick. You don't have a clue what that really, really means. Paul says that he shared, that word means that he shared, he invested his life emotionally, physically, and spiritually. He made himself available to his friends. And he said in chapter 1, if you remember, you model me. Do it the way I do it. Do it in such a way that brings honor and glory to your son, Jesus. Throughout this section, we get sense of Paul's transparency. You can, he, he's the kind of guy you see what you get. I mean, you get what you see. You know what I mean. If you were to look at verses 1, 2, 5, 9, and 10, you'll see that Paul is exactly who he says he is. He also says that he has, verse 9, a willingness to work. In our culture, isn't that quite the quality? That someone actually wants to work and will work? I was talking to some friends the other day. I was at a place and their business, and I said, hey, it looks like you've had a little change of faces here. And they said, yeah, I mean, we can't get by stick around very long. No one wants to, to work. How often have we heard that through all the generations? I'm not saying that's a characteristic of this generation, but it just seems to be a characteristic of a lot of generations. Paul said we are willing to work. We took care of ourselves. We did not want to be a financial burden on anyone. Verses 11 12, he also says that they had a desire to challenge. He went from nursing mother to encouraging dad and he said they wanted to be or they were like a dad that would challenge his children to grow to excel and Paul's saying what I did for you spiritually I wanted to see you come to faith grow and mature a lot of times we handle our kids in a very special way just because we want them to become more someday don't we so yeah we make them toe the line and do this and don't do that because we want them to be more Someday. That's how Paul did it. That was his methodology. Real quickly, let me share with you the motive of his defense. Two words pleasing God. His methodology, man of integrity. Here's the characteristics. Why? He wanted to please God. Verse 4 says that Paul was driven by a desire to please God, not men. Paul wasn't playing to the crowds, and he wasn't about applause. He just wanted to please God. And isn't that what we ought to do? Yeah, we'll work together, and we'll hold hands, we'll make it all happen, but the bottom line is we want to please God. If I want to please God, then I'm going to treat my wife a certain way. 
My kid's a certain way. My friend's a certain way. And if I'm really wanting to please him, things are going to start to line up because my number one goal is to please, to please God. It says he didn't seek the praise of others. He wasn't driven by desire. He wanted to do what he could to serve and not be served. So then I have to ask my question, okay, that's all fine, that's all good. What does that mean for us? Today, Evansville, Indiana, almost snowed in. What does it mean for us? When criticized, and if you are connected to any organization, any personality, any situation, especially the church, when you are criticized, and you will, be, evaluate the criticism honestly. The fact is, if you're actively involved, connected, you will be criticized. The only way to avoid criticism, especially in the church, is to do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. When criticized, and you will be, commit yourself to using the right methods, the ones that we've just talked about. When you are criticized, don't let the criticism paralyze you. As soon as they pulled out the rods or opened up the jail doors, I'd have probably said, hey, I'm done. I'm going home. I want any part of this action. Paul didn't go home. He stayed there and he continued to minister even during strong persecution. When criticized, I've saved this one for the very last. I don't like it. When criticized, respond with a humble, gracious attitude. Not with anger, resentment. Anybody here like that one? Easier said than done, right? I told people for service, I probably shouldn't tell you this. I already kind of let the cat out of the bag, so now you'll know all my tricks. If you see me around here talking to someone sometime and my hand is in my pocket, that means I'm pinching my leg. And I am trying to tell my head, don't say it. Jerry, don't say it, no matter how much they deserve it, no matter how much they need to hear it. This is not the time, not the place. This is not, just don't say it. So if you see me kind of doing this thing, I'm pinching my leg, trying. If you see me, I got one more tell. If you see me like chewing on my lip, I'm trying to tell myself, don't say it. Regardless of what they said, how they said it, regardless of how much they deserve it, this is not the time or the place. It's not going to do any good. Just don't say it. So those of you who use chapstick because you need to keep your lips moist, I do it just for survival. You know? When criticism comes and it comes, respond with a humble, gracious attitude, not with anger, resentment. And maybe, just maybe, before we criticize, we should do what Paul did, we should be gentle with one another. We should be encouraging with one another. And verses 17 through 20, we need to learn how to enjoy one another. And then, let the chips fall where they, where they may. There's a company in Texas, their goal is to tear new products apart, see what makes them tick, and criticize. 
When the new iPhones came out, they went out and they stood in line for hours to get three new iPhones. They brought them back to their business and they began to tear those things apart. They wanted to know where everything came from, how it worked, uh, what, what, what made it tick. And before long, they found some difficulties in the new iPhone. So they reported their findings to manufacturers, investors, and resellers. And then the iPhones went into what they call their company's morgue. You know the sad thing? I know people like that. I know people who think that is their calling from God to attack, to tear apart, to criticize. You know people like that? You're not people like that, are you? Words matter. How we say it, what we say, when we say it, it all matters. Have you ever heard someone say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will what? Never hurt me, never harm me? That's a lie. What you say can be very, very hurtful and harmful. Probably the most powerful words in the world. Are you with me? I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Man, if we could get that going on, we'd be a much, much better people and a much, much better place. Maybe during this time of communion today, maybe you need to approach the throne and ask that God might help you be a little easier with your words, quicker to encourage, not quite so fast to criticize. Maybe that's where you start today in this time of communion, this time where you, by yourself, pray and ask God for grace and forgiveness and mercy and love and the ability to to control it. Will you pray with me?